Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Probe Podcast. My name is Paul Rutherford, and I'm Research Associate with Probe Ministries. And today, we're going to be talking about ancient evidence for Jesus from non-Christian sources. And I'm excited to have this conversation today with one of my fellow colleagues who has much experience and much wisdom to share with us uh, on this topic. My guest today is a colleague of many years, Michael Gleghorn. Thanks for joining us. Well, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Glad you're here. Of course, your, um, your cred is that you do hold a THM from Dallas Seminary, a master's in theology, PhD in theology. Yes. Right, from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, so much training, much credibility, uh, much educational background on these types of topics. So you're very well qualified to have this conversation. And I'm looking forward to learning from you today more about evidence that supports uh, the reliability of our scriptures, the reliability of the Gospels, the reliability of the New Testament, particularly from historical recordings that are not Christian, not biblical. Yes, yeah, historical sources that are non-Christian in origin. I think this is so uh, important because so many believers, even in Jesus, really believe that uh, our faith has validity because it is corroborated independently of Scripture, which is somewhat of what we're going to talk about today, right? But naturally, you and I know that the best testament to the reliability of Christianity is the New Testament. Yeah, when I wrote this program on ancient evidence for Jesus from non-Christian sources, one of the things that led me to write it, I remember reading a book by uh, the great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, and uh, at one point in his book, he talks about getting a letter from a Christian man who was told by an agnostic friend of his that, quote, Apart from obscure references in Josephus and the like, there was no historical evidence for the life of Jesus outside the Bible. And he talks about how this had caused him a great deal of disquiet in his hmm. spiritual life. And he uh -huh. was wondering, you know, are there ancient historical references to Jesus that are non-biblical in origin? And so, Bruce was responding to that in his book. But uh, one of the things that's important to bear in mind is that, yeah, when it comes to the life of Jesus, when it comes to what we might call the biographical information about the life of Jesus, mm -hmm. that our earliest and our best sources of historical information concerning the life of Jesus come from the New Testament documents themselves, and particularly when it comes to the life of Jesus from the four New Testament Gospels. These are actually our earliest and best historical sources for the life of Jesus. Uh, anything else that we have about the life of Jesus is later and is not as good of an historical source as the New Testament Gospels themselves. Wow. Okay, so what a testament to the historical power of the Gospels. What I heard you say was that those are the earliest and best accounts of Jesus' life, biographical information. Yeah, anything that we're going to be able to say about Jesus that his historical value ultimately is going to be grounded in the New Testament Gospels themselves. Hmm. Wow, that's quite a statement. That's quite significant. You know, but I, I think the way you described that letter that was written by a friend or associate to Bruce could very well describe the state of our listener today, that maybe he or she has heard that, hey, there's, there's outside the Bible maybe a couple things. There's really no evidence that Jesus ever really was. Yes. And so what we're going to talk about today is the fact that that's not the case. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah there are early and important non-Christian references specifically to Jesus and early Christianity. 
Great. Okay. So just for reference for you, listener, the conversation we're going to have today, uh, you can look up and find on our website, probe.org. And then the keywords you want to search for are ancient evidence for Jesus from non-Christian sources. Yes. And this is written up in an article link that you can look at, read, scan, and you can find footnotes. Michael, you have footnoted everything, that, all the sources you've cited. So listener, if you're more interested in this, you want to dig in, please know that there is more information there for you on the website as well. So, okay. So Michael, so what sources do you consider um, as evidence that are non-Christian? What are we going to talk about today? Okay, well, since this was initially a radio program, and these radio programs are written at a, a week at a time, so mm-hmm. kind of Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. I chose five different sources. And so the sources that I considered in my article are Tacitus, who was a Roman historian who was writing in the early 2nd century okay. AD, the you know events that concern the Gospels are taking place in the first half of the first century and then are written up in the New Testament in the second half of the first century, primarily. And so Tacitus would be an early non-Christian source writing in the early second century. Okay. And he was a Roman historian. Roman historian Tacitus. Yes. Got it. And then the second source that I consider is by a man named Pliny the Younger. And these actually come from a series of letters that he wrote. He was uh, the Roman governor of Bithynia Mm. in Asia Minor, and he wrote a series of letters to the emperor Trajan. And the one that we're most concerned about is one that he wrote asking for Trajan's advice and input concerning how to deal with people who had been accused of being Christians. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to know kind of, you know, this is this is what I've done in the past. Do you have any suggestions as far as, you know, how to deal with these matters? And many of these, as we'll see, not all of them, but many of these are rather pejorative references both to Jesus and early Christianity. And so we kind of have to mm. separate the wheat from the chaff because they don't read like things that you would find in the Gospels, mm-hmm. say, in which... Jesus is lauded for the sort of person that he was, and and early Christians are held in high esteem. These are sources that are non-Christian in origin, and so don't always have a positive view of Jesus and early Christianity. And that would make sense, right? Because if if your author is not Christian, then it doesn't make sense that they would take a Christian position, or what is common among Christians, that they wouldn't have that perspective. They wouldn't look at him as glowing or wonderful or amazing, or they wouldn't necessarily even have a positive thing to say about him. They might be entirely critical. So in, in that sense, that sounds like it would be even more consistent. Yes, yeah, you're exactly right. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to think and speak and write like Christians, and that, in fact, is largely what we find in these sources. Yeah, that's great. Hey, thanks for for setting that up, what these sources are that we're going to be talking about, because the first one is a Roman historian, Tacitus. Yes. Right, okay. So, what do we learn from him? What does he say? So, Tacitus is, as I said, a Roman historian who's writing in the early 2nd century, uh, around 116 AD. This is from a book that's called The Annals, and this is the relevant paragraph that concerns Jesus and early Christianity. It reads like this, quote, But all human efforts... All the lavish gifts of the emperor, and I should probably break in here and just insert a couple of historical notes that that the emperor being referred to here is Emperor Nero. And kind of the context, what Tacitus is discussing, is the famous fire that burned down Rome in 64 AD, mm. which some people thought that Nero himself may have set. That okay. was That was at least 
something that was in the air that Nero Conjecture. himself might have been to blame for yeah. the origin of this fire. Okay. And then Nero passed the guilt off on the Christians. So okay. that's kind of what's going on here in this quotation. All right. So I'll go ahead and begin again. He says, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. And so this is a quotation from Tacitus that obviously many scholars would see as referring to Jesus and early Christianity. And uh, there's not a lot of debate among scholars that this is authentically in Tacitus. There's not much debate about that, that this is something that Tacitus actually wrote and that it refers to Jesus and early Christians. So it's very likely authentic then and genuine yes, from yes. the source that's from Tacitus. Yes, exactly. That people don't really dispute that this is what Tacitus actually wrote. It hasn't been doctored by okay. early Christian copyists great. or anything like that. So it's reliable. It's trustworthy. Yes. That's great. Okay. If you'll let me hear. So I heard some keywords, right? I heard when you set up the context of talking about the fire in Rome that burned Rome. And the emperor's response, Emperor Nero, as you pointed out, that there was a, a persecution of the Christians. Um, I heard the word Christ used. I heard Pontius Pilate used. I, I heard some real key words that really does sound like it fits the story relayed in the New Testament that Tacitus really does have Jesus here in view. Yes, in particular, he says Christus, just going back even a sentence before that, it said that Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. And then he goes on to tell us how the Christians got their name. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And so here he refers to Jesus using the title Christ, or he calls it Christus, yep. uh, which is just the title Christ, which comes from the Hebrew term Messiah and means the anointed one. Okay. So, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus is often called Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. So it's referring to Jesus, and it says that he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius at the hands, and then it mentions the procurator Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. So it refers to him explicitly, and of course this is just in line with what the New Testament tells us, that Jesus was condemned to death by the order of Pontius Pilate. Now what's really fascinating is then what Tacitus goes on to say after that, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. 
And so some people have wondered, well, what might Tacitus be referring to here? What is this mischievous superstition? Yeah, what is that? And how is it that it was checked for a moment and then breaks out not only in Judea, where it originated, but even in Rome? What's going on there? And some people think that Tacitus might here be bearing kind of indirect testimony to the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, the resurrection. And basically kind of what what seems to be going on here is that this mischievous superstition Mm -hmm. could be that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah whom God has promised to us in the Hebrew Bible or the what Christians regard as the Old Testament scriptures. Mm-hmm. He is the promised Messiah. Now, that superstition, using Tacitus's words here, that superstition was checked for the moment with the death of Christ. Once he was crucified, then that superstition, that superstitious belief, again using Tacitus's terminology here, would be checked for the moment because we think he's the Messiah, but oh, now he's been crucified. Well, I guess we were wrong. He wasn't the promised Messiah after all because he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we must have been wrong in our mm-hmm. belief that he was the promised Messiah. So that superstition is checked for the moment. But then it breaks out again, Tacitus tells us, that it was checked for the moment, but then it again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And you wonder, well, how would it break out again after his crucifixion? And, of course, one way that that superstition could break out again is that if God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and then he subsequently appears to his disciples as the risen Christ, then that would confirm their original belief that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So his death would check that superstition for a moment, Mm -hmm. but then it again breaks out, because of the resurrection. That would be a way to account for the fact that the superstition was checked and then breaks out again. Okay. So Tacitus doesn't explicitly mention the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus, but he appears, he, he is plausibly bearing indirect mm-hmm. reference to the Christian belief that God yes. had raised Jesus from the dead and that he was indeed the promised Messiah after all. Yeah. I mean, that's great evidence, yeah. bearing witness to Jesus and his teachings and the, and the beliefs of his followers. And again, Tacitus being Roman, not a Christian, has no interest in recording these things. There's no benefit he's going to gain from recording accurately what's recorded in the New Testament. And yet what he's saying does sound reliably and re- almost remarkably similar to what is recorded in the New Testament. Yeah, so what Tacitus, who's a non-Christian, Roman, pagan author is telling us here in in this account, he is bearing historical testimony, in many respects kind of the outline of what we might call the passion of the Christ, as well as the Christian belief concerning who Jesus was and why. You know, he gives us the title for Christ, tells us that Mm -hmm. Christians get their name from this title that belonged to this actual historical person who was crucified, he suffered the extreme penalty. That's a reference to the Roman method of execution Mm -hmm. of crucifixion. And that this happened in space and time and history during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator, Pontius Pilate. So all of this, you know, is perfectly consistent with what we read about. It's in outline form, obviously, but this is precisely what we read in the New Testament itself. Mm -hmm. And then even plausibly bearing witness by referring to this mischievous superstition to the Christian belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead Mm -hmm. and that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. 
Wow, it's great. So, so yeah, it's very compact. It's an outline form, but it does go to confirm what we read about in the New Testament Gospels. Yeah, that's it's, fantastic. It's, it's certainly consistent with it and not inconsistent. Great. Okay, so it sounds like we already have one source that's non-Christian who's confirming things that are recorded in the New Testament. Yes. In Tacitus, a historian, Roman yes. historian. Yeah, and this would be considering that the time that these events happened and considering the time and where they happened and who was in power at the time and so forth. You know, this comes from a source that is only a little bit later than the time that the New Testament itself was written, which was largely in the second half of the first century. Okay. And this comes from relatively early in the second century, around 116 AD. Wow, great. All right, so what's another source that we have? Okay, so another source would come from Pliny the Younger, and he was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he is writing in a series of letters that he wrote to the Emperor Trajan at the time, around 112 AD. Okay. So, in fact, if these dates are accurate, this would be even a few years prior to the time that Tacitus wrote. Um, and he's basically okay. asking for the Emperor Trajan's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those accused of being Christians. And so, this would be kind of an abbreviated version of what he writes to the Emperor Trajan. But let me go ahead and read and quote from Pliny here. He's referring to the Christians, and he says, They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate, and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So this is a fascinating quotation from Pliny the Younger, and is, again, from a non-Christian source, one that is rather hostile to the Christians. And notice what he says. He, first of all, mentions that these early Christians are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, so they would gather very early in order to worship together. Mm -hmm. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now, here he specifically mentions Christ, again by his title, Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And what's interesting is he talks about them singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. And I remember reading one historical source that was saying that Pliny seems to be reflecting on the fact that Christians are worshiping this person, singing to him as if to a God, and mm -hmm. yet he was an actual person who lived in space and time and history. He had actually been a historical person, a human being who yeah. lived on the earth. And yet they were worshiping him as a god. And so uh, that's quite interesting because there you get both the idea that Jesus is an actual historical man, a human being who lived on the earth. And nonetheless, the early Christians uh, seem to be worshiping him as a god, uh, which is, again, perfectly consistent with the New Testament. I mean, that dovetails very nicely with the New Testament view that Jesus was fully God and fully man, or truly God and truly man. Yes. 
and that the early Christians worshipped him as a divine man, as the God-man. And you notice that they bind themselves with a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. So here you see the importance that the early Christians placed on the ethical teachings of Jesus, that their lifestyle was consistent with the sort of life that Jesus himself taught and you know, encouraged his followers to live. So there you see their reverence and respect for the ethical teachings of Jesus. And then Pliny concludes by saying that after this, after this had happened, it was their custom to separate and then to reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. <laughs> now, it's an interesting description. Yes, it is. It's an, it's an interesting description, and you're kind of like, well, what's, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. What many historians believe is that this is a reference to the early Christian love feast, celebrating basically the death of Jesus for our sins. And this would be similar to in contemporary Protestant evangelical churches, you know, the celebration of what we'd call communion or the Lord's Supper, in which we remember the death of Christ and, you know, thinking about his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And so when we eat the bread, we're partaking of the body of Christ. When we drink the blood, we're partaking of the blood of Christ. And the way that this is couched is that this was food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And so it seems to be the early Christians partaking of the love feast as a memorial supper, you know, a way of remembering Mm -hmm. the death of Christ and that these women who Pliny was interviewing, these Christian women who he even tortured to find out some of this information, are saying that you know, that this was food of an ordinary and innocent kind, which seems to be trying to counter the suspicion and the accusation among some early pagans that Christians were practicing a form of ritual cannibalism Mm -hmm. and maybe eating the flesh and drinking the blood of a human sacrificial victim. Yeah, okay. And what these women are concerned to say is, no, this was food of an ordinary and innocent kind. This was, you know, bread and wine, but that... You know, this is in remembrance of the death of Jesus. You know, like in the Gospels, he says to his disciples, you know, on the night that he's betrayed, you know, take, eat, this is my body that is given for you. And when he passes the cup, he says, Mm -hmm. take and drink, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so what they seem to be emphasizing here is that this is a memorial supper. We're remembering the death of Jesus his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. But we're not literally eating human flesh and drinking human blood. We're Mm -hmm. not practicing ritual cannibalism. This is food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Yeah. And the accusations that are being made of us are slanderous accusations that are untrue. Yes. And so they're concerned to refute that and to object that that's not what we're doing. We're not evil people doing evil things. Mm -hmm. That this is all above board and perfectly legitimate. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like that's reflected in the language that Pliny used 
for what I hear you saying from the sources, the Christian sources that he had interviewed yes. about what it is, what are you doing? What is it that you're doing when you get together in these rituals and these sacraments that you're taking? And he's getting this language from them. And these women, as you're saying, his interview sources are giving him information, which in some respect is a defense of defending themselves against accusations of the day by some common pagans that they were cannibals, but when in fact they were not. But yes. the interesting thing here is I think that we're seeing that language in the words of Pliny the Younger, someone who is not Christian, who isn't a believer, but he's using these words that seem to authenticate his message that, yes, if he were talking to Christians, then he would be getting interview questions like this. And so that seems to bear, again, the authenticity and the genuineness of the report that we're receiving from someone like Pliny the Younger, who is a Roman governor and who's not himself a Christian. Again, no interest. There's no vested interest for him to falsify information or to say something to toe the party line, so to speak. He He's going to receive no benefit personally himself from doing any of these things. That's exactly right. Yeah, he's writing to the <clears throat> Emperor Trajan because he's not really sure, what do I do with these people? I mean, once I get them in here and begin to interview them, and sometimes even under torture, it's not like they're doing anything that, you know, could really be considered illegal. Um, he was troubled by the fact that, you know, if they remain obstinate and refuse to you know, sacrifice to the emperor, you know, mm -hmm. acknowledge our gods and, you know, persist in maintaining that they're Christians, then, mm -hmm. then he thought because of their obstinacy that they should go ahead and be executed. But he, he, he wasn't really sure what to do, and one of his reasons for writing to Emperor Trajan is because when he interviewed them, even under torture, he's like, they're not really doing anything that most people would regard as evil. Yeah. You know, they, they get together, they worship this man, Jesus, as if he were a god. Curious, and not they, criminal. They, yeah, they bind themselves not to do any evil deed, not to falsify their word or commit theft or commit adultery or mm -hmm. anything like that. So, you know, they're committed to high moral standards. And then even this accusation that they might be practicing ritual cannibalism, the, they say, no, the, the food that they're partaking of is a, of an ordinary and innocent kind. That they're, mm -hmm. not, they're not doing anything that would be immoral or evil in any sort of normally understood sense. Yeah. That's fantastic. And like you said, would agree with the New Testament, you know, that these early Christians, that they recognized that Jesus is an actual human being who lived on the earth, mm -hmm. who taught certain things, who died on a Roman cross for mm -hmm. our sins, and yet he's more than just a human being, that he is actually God the Son incarnate. Worshipped as a God. He is yes. worthy of worship because he's not just human, but he is divine. Mm -hmm. He is God the Son in the flesh. And so the early Christians worshipped him as God, and then we also see them remembering him, just as Jesus taught them to do, remembering his death for their sins by partaking of the love feast and celebrating and remembering his death. Wow. Okay, that's great. So I've got at least four things here that we're learning from Pliny the Younger. One, that these Christians got together and worshipped on a fixed day, which we can see, hey, we see that in the New Testament. Two, that they were worshipping Christ as a God, his, his divinity, also New Testament doctrine. Three, that he was actually a historical person. He's referring to a physical person. And then four, that they were celebrating what we now call the Lord's Supper. And so these four things are all things that we see either recorded or taught in New Testament scripture. Yes, that's exactly right. Wow, that's fantastic. 
and again, the significance being that it's recorded by someone who has no vested interest. This guy is not a Christian. He's not writing to toe the party line. He's not writing to make converts. He's not writing for propaganda. He's not writing because he's getting kickback from Christians or priests or pastors for anybody. Um, in fact, if anything, as you said, he, he really has an antagonistic stance. He's executing many of these Christians because they're not worshiping the gods of the culture, for sure. Now, this has been really interesting, and, I, and I'm sorry to say that we're probably close to out of time here. And I know at the beginning of our conversation, there were three more sources, right? Uh, three more ancient sources yes. that, are, that stand as evidence for Jesus that we want to talk about. It sounds like we're probably not going to have time to, to finish those today. But if you'd be willing, I'd love to have you back, and we can record another podcast for another day, and we can discuss uh, more ancient sources that are evidence for Jesus. Yeah, that would be terrific. Okay. Well, then we will have to plan that for another day. But this has been a really good conversation, Michael. Again, speaking to the sufficiency and the reliability of the New Testament Gospels. And, you know, today we've talked about Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, and we've talked about Tacitus, a Roman historian, who both have written records bearing witness to a historical Jesus who was worshipped as God. Uh, we see practices like the Lord's Supper. We see things like Jesus being crucified, right? The extreme penalty, as Tacitus puts it. And the reference to Pontius Pilate, which of course dovetails perfectly with the New yes. Testament Gospels. And then yes. even, although he doesn't explicitly mention it, you know, even the possibility of indirectly referencing the Christian belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Okay. And that the Christian Thank belief you. that Jesus was the Messiah. Yes. Again, he doesn't explicitly state that, but mm -hmm. just when he refers to this mischievous superstition that was checked for the moment and then again breaks out not only in Judea but even in Rome, one plausible way of explaining why it is that that superstition would be checked for a moment and then break out again is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, I see. That's great. Man, some really interesting things that we've learned in terms of historical sources for Jesus who are non-Christian. This has been really interesting, and I hope really beneficial for uh, you, our listener, in terms of knowing that there's just a, a wealth of witness to the historical reliability of the scriptures, of the gospels, of the New Testament in general. And then today, we've really only talked about a selection that you really can trust your Bible. And, you know, one of the key things I heard you say at the beginning of this uh, podcast, Michael, was that the best sources that we have for the biography of the person of Jesus are the gospels. Yes. Yeah. Those are our earliest and best historical sources for the life of Jesus. Okay, so that's good because if you're listening and you're a Christian and maybe you're doubting or you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I've got my Bible, but isn't it full of errors? Isn't it full of holes? Aren't there problems with translation? Aren't there problems with transcription? Aren't there problems with the passing down process of the New Testaments over the years? And what we've received today can't be trusted because of all these errors and all these problems. What I hear you saying, Michael, is that's not the case. No, we're not talking about a lot of those issues per se, but what we're talking about is how other historical sources point to and corroborate teachings and recordings in the Bible. And what I hear you saying is that the Bible is, in fact, the best source on Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus was and what happened to his life, the best source to go to is, is the Bible. Yeah, as, as far as the life of Jesus, the like I say, the earliest and best historical sources would be the New Testament Gospels, that we don't have any other sources that are earlier or better than those. Now, of course, this is thinking of the Gospels not in terms of inspired or inerrant scripture, 
those are things that I believe about the New Testament Gospels. Mm -hmm. But this would just be thinking about the Gospels in terms of historical sources. So as historians look at these sources, they might not believe that these sources, if they're professional historians mm -hmm. and are non-Christians, they might not believe these sources are inerrant or inspired by God or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They're just looking at them purely as historical sources. And they would agree that these are our earliest and best historical sources for the life of Jesus, even if they do think that they contain errors and, and all the rest. As I say, that would be a, a separate issue, but just thinking about these in terms of historical sources, these are our earliest and best sources for the yes. life of Jesus. You know, and thank you for that distinction in terms of looking at these as historical documents versus as the inspired Word of God. Yes. That's a good distinction, and that historians, whether they believe in Jesus or not, can look at these documents and treat them as they are, ancient documents. And so that's a good distinction. I'm glad that you brought that out, even owing to the fact that uh, let's not talk about their inspiration from God. Let's just treat them like any other ancient source. They're still really the best source, historically speaking. Yes, They're that's... the earliest, closest dated to the events. They're the most detailed, the most accurate, the most faithful. Historically, it's got it going on. Yeah, so even scholars that might, for philosophical reasons, you know, think that Let's say that they believe that miracles are just impossible because they don't believe that God exists. Maybe they're atheists. So they might discount certain stories in the Bible because of the miraculous or whatever. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, they would have to admit that these are our earliest and best historical sources for the life of Jesus. Mm. Wow, that's great. That's fantastic. I thank you for listening in today to this uh, new edition of the Probe Podcast. If you have further questions, you can check out the website probe.org. You can always email us at info at probe.org. I've been your host today, Paul Rutherford, research at Probe Ministries, and my guest has been the esteemed uh, Dr. Michael Gleghorn. Michael, thanks for being here and having this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, Michael. Thanks. We'll, uh, we will see you next time. Yeah.